This podcast contains sensitive topics and explicit language that may not be suitable for all listeners. Previously on The Shot. One by one, it was just a parade of orange jumpsuited inmates who were coming out and saying that they knew who had done this crime. And it was a really difficult thing to watch. It's very possible that any jailhouse snitch can tell you the truth in every, in every way. Okay, it's also possible that they may lie to you from the beginning to the very end. And we told him that we thought he should leave town, but for people with not very much, you know, with limited means and limited experience, that's really unheard of, but we tried. People are complicated. None of us are all one thing. We've got secrets, some small, some big. And it makes you think, what if your life wound up under a microscope? A single random day. Would your secrets hurt the people you love? And what if they led to your murder? Would you still want them kept, even if it meant your killer would go free? Something has become clear about Victor Decker. He didn't die on his finest day or in his finest hour. It turned out that Decker was not altogether faithful to his wife, and that was blatantly obvious in the text messages. That's Jennifer Stanton, Raymond Perry's attorney. It showed that there was at least potentially someone or several someones out there who might have some reason to kill him other than our clients. I'm Gary Hargai. I'm Joanne Kimberlin. We're reporters at the Virginian Pilot in Norfolk, Virginia. And this is the fifth episode of The Shot. The text messages police found on Decker's phone are something we've struggled with ourselves, how to handle them. See, Gary and I are both veteran reporters, and we've wanted to get to this story for years. It's our hometown's biggest whodunit. We sensed early on that it had a lot of threads. By most accounts, Decker was a good guy and a good family man, but we'd heard he might have had a darker side. Once we met Don, it became real, just how painful the story could get for everyone. Gary and I talked about it in the newsroom. And I just feel really sad about this story today. It's really sad. It's just really sad. All of it is. I mean, it leads you down these different paths. Someone's put online the photo of his mom dancing with him uh-huh. at his wedding. Yeah. And when I saw that photo at Dawn's house the first time, it, I guess I really related to it because that's kind of, she's almost the same age I am. So I could just. Oh, really? Yeah. And I could just see. You know, there's a certain there's a certain look on her face, and I don't know. I just knew that look, that mom look. You know what else made me really sad? We know this side of him, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about it in public because we have to. And this makes me sad for his family. You know. You're right. We're gonna talk about some really difficult points in his life and things that he either did or is accused of doing that reflect very poorly on him. Again, I go back to the reason we're doing this, the reason the bad of doing that, of of explaining all those things, outweighs the good of not doing it, is because ultimately 
he's still dead and nobody knows who killed him. The messages obtained by the pilot are from the days and hours closest to Decker's death. They're from the weekend Dawn took Charlotte to Atlanta, Decker's last weekend alive. That Saturday, just a few hours after he dropped off his wife and child at the Norfolk airport, Decker started looking for sex. He sent the same message to 13 different women. I need someone to come wear me out so I can sleep. A few answered with things like, sorry babe, can't make it. Others said things that made it obvious they'd hooked up with him before. On Monday afternoon, one, a married Norfolk dispatcher, said yes. It's clear they'd had sex in the past. He gave her directions and told her to park behind his truck. She had sex with him hours before he was murdered. That evening, before he headed to the club, they messaged about how much they enjoyed it. All the while he was texting Don, telling her how much he loves and misses her. Back before the case fell apart, Emily Munn, Kareem Turner's attorney, asked prosecutors if they'd told Don about the text messages. At some point, we asked if someone had given Decker's widow a heads up that you know this was potentially embarrassing slash damaging information that none of us enjoyed the obligation to share with the public. That was not our conversation to have, but I think one of us had a conversation with one of the Commonwealth attorneys where we said, look, you know, just as someone talked to her, as someone explained to her that this is you know, going to happen if we have to go to trial. We don't want to go to trial. We think that our clients are innocent. You should drop the charges. If Dawn didn't know, we had to tell her. Her husband's other side had come up briefly in one of the hearings, but that might have been the only hearing Dawn didn't attend. Mike Mather reported on it. The reason that is important in a case like this it's, you're not bringing that up to impugn the police officer or to embarrass his wife or anything. You're bringing it up. Why? It's, you know, it was their duty to defend their clients to the best of their abilities, and they were going to show, they were going to use that information to show that there were other people, in fact, plenty of people, who may have had a motive to stalk and kill this police officer, especially in the manner that it was done. We faced Decker's secrets early on with his widow. It would have been wrong to blindside Dawn later. I was sure we'd lose her. Gary had more faith. We met at a Chick-fil-A near her apartment so Charlotte could play on the jungle gym while we talked. We didn't even try to tape that interview. Truth is, we could hardly get the words out ourselves. After all she's been through, now this. Something no grieving widow would want to know, much less see aired in public. Had she known... Dawn swallowed hard, and she teared up. We did, too, or at least I did. Then she nodded. One of the prosecutors had indeed tried to warn her back then. But in her mind, she'd been able to dismiss it as only rumors, baseless flack tossed up by defense attorneys. We told her it was true. We'd seen proof. Her husband was not faithful. After a heavy silence, we had to ask, did she still want to continue? She didn't hesitate. Yes. Why go through all of this with us? I, I've had some people kind of push. They tell me I'm not angry enough. So I've always kind of wondered how can I find a way to open this back up and have somebody take a look at it and go, this isn't right. This family deserves answers. So when I got the phone call of, that you were interested in doing this, 
I was a little skeptical, I'm not going to lie, um, you know, because I didn't know how far you were looking to go, and I mean, I know that our first meeting was a little awkward, um, but I mean, it was, it was fine. I mean, I, I met with you, and I kind of had the understanding of where you were trying to go with this, and this is, you know, it's not going to be easy to sit here and share this. It's not easy to go back over every memory. But it's worth it because more than anything, the answers are there. Somebody just has to push for them. So we went back to work. I, I think I can tell you that there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of text messages. They took everything off of his phone. Then the text messages were important for us to put together his timeline for that night because, you know, we're trying to figure out what time did he get to the club, who was he with. If you find out that you're in a, someone was in a fight with a person or having sex with someone who's married, any of those things that you put out there, I mean, that those would be avenues for us to explore as defense attorneys. Once we had the details confirmed, we discussed the text messages with Don again. Well, I know that when you came in here, we had told you we were going to finish up with some tough stuff, so mm -hmm. we kind of pushed it to the end because if you want to run out the door, I want you to feel able to do that. Okay? Save the worst for last. I got it. Yeah. Well, well it gives you a chance to not have to focus on other things if maybe you just... Anyway, but we, we did want to talk to you about some things, so Randy, could you turn the mic off maybe? We tell her that her husband was casting a wide net while she was in Atlanta and that he had sex with at least one woman on the day he died. Afterward, she agrees to turn back on the mic. Don, knowing what you have learned about Victor since his death and some, some of the painful things, the part of him you didn't know, how, how do you feel about all this now? Whatever, I mean, it doesn't change the fact that he was killed. Whatever he may have been doing or not doing or whatever, I mean, I, I've heard the accusations. I, I know you know, that there's the implication that he was not being faithful to me. Okay, fine. Yeah, that stings a little bit, but that doesn't change the fact that he shouldn't have been killed, and I want to know why he was killed. It doesn't, it doesn't change that basic, simple fact that somebody murdered him. And your daughter. I mean, how do you feel about, you know, her dad? Like I said, um, I don't know where we would have been. At, you know, this far down the road in our own marriage, I mean, I don't know if we would have been married or, or whatever. I mean, if he, if he was cheating, he was unhappy. And so I can't say we would still be married, but he should have had the opportunity to be there for Charlotte. And Charlotte should have had the opportunity to grow up with her father. We asked Stanton if she thought police had followed the text trails looking for jealous husbands or angry boyfriends. Did you ever have any indication that the Commonwealth or the investigators went down that route at all, explored any of that? I can tell you I saw virtually no evidence that they explored the thought of somebody involved in any of these text messages or the husband or brother or boyfriend of any of the people in these text messages being involved. Unfortunately, there are also women who like to follow the badge. And That's probably true. 
Tohu. That's their main goal is to see how many how many officers they can wow. get. Like following a groupies following. Yeah. Unfortunately oh, the not so nice term is they're called badge bunnies. That's actually a nicer term than I would have given them. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking of worse things than what I, there, there, there are more colorful... I gotta write that one down. Colorful explanations for yeah, what these women might be called, but... I, I didn't know that, but it makes sense. There's usually a groupie for just about every type yeah, of Yeah, they're definitely... Career. Yes. And, and cops with their guns and their uniforms kind yeah, of hard. And, I mean, he did get kind of cocky after he had his uh, shooting. I mean, because he was all of a sudden getting a lot of attention. Well, that and he felt like he was bulletproof at that stage. I mean, I, I don't know any other way to put it. I mean, right. he had survived this incident. Look what I did, and, and did it really well. Yeah. And everybody was like, yeah. I mean, he hero. got yeah. a lot of awards for it. I mean, yeah, that doesn't okay. change the facts that he, you know, did that yeah. and he was able to come home. But oh, you're yeah. right, he got a lot of attention. And so I'm not reason? necessarily surprised, I guess I would say, that maybe he was you know Isn't reaching out so but at the same time that's something like that something so good and cool is you know you, you do this big shootout and you come out the hero and you do the right thing could actually lead you to like screw up so bad in your like personal life it's well it's and I mean, a bad thing i kind of the way i see it is here's this 24 25 year old male who you know basically skated death i don't know any other way to put it and yeah. you know so and he was getting a lot of attention for it. You know, you're that, I know you, you're that cop. You're, you know, we know about you and, and I get it. I mean, it, it was hard to go out because, I mean, although they did not put his picture out there, thank goodness. He, I mean, it got out that it was, you know, this officer that was always on bike. He was always on bike. Everybody knew who he was. And certainly everyone who knew him and everyone in the department knew. And he had him. no, I mean, there was, there was no shame about him whatsoever. I mean, he'd walk outside in a towel, for goodness sake. I mean, he just, he was that open kind of personality of, you know, yeah, that was me. That, did you hear about that? That was me. I mean, I found messages, like, when this happened of, you know, hey, did you see what happened? Did, and he was sending out the article to other, like, friends of ours. Like, did you see what I did? And, and I'm kind of like. He was very proud of it. He was very proud of it. Being recognized and idolized affects people. Imagine you're an everyday cop, then all of a sudden you're the hero who single-handedly takes down a killer who just shot at you. A little bit of fame, bulletproof, like Don said. Before Kareem Turner was charged with murdering Decker, he was a small-time guy from the streets. Then suddenly his face was splashed all over the news. Either he killed a cop and got away with it, or he was innocent all along and managed to prove it. When he got out of jail, he was feeling a little bulletproof himself. Turner took his little bit of fame right back to the tough neighborhoods where he'd lived all of his life. But the unfortunate thing is while those young men were engaged uh, in the system on this frivolous charge, it kind of created like a folklore for them in the community. Because of course, as it is well known, there's problems between the black community and the police. That's community activist Michael Muhammad. And when you have the type of problems that our communities have, where there's a lot of death on our side, but minimal death on their side, it's very hard to find people 
that have been subject to that type of treatment that have a lament in their heart over the death of one that is seen as an enemy. And so that one or those who would be seen as the perpetrator or the one who carried that out would somewhat get like a hero's welcome. And that's just to be honest. Uh, and so there became like a folklore. And while even though these young men, none of us believe committed the crime, it became somewhat of a badge of honor to even be charged with such a crime. That's Buck, man. Got down. Still on Fenner Street, B. You're listening to a YouTube video posted by Turner shortly after the Decker charges were dropped. He wants to be a rapper. He calls himself Hess Buck. Hey, Hess Buck is a celebrity now. Hess Buck is a celebrity now. Let me get some wood. Some Turn that camera that way. I don't, I don't got nothing for eight. Turn that camera that way. Oh, yeah. I don't got nothing. Munn and Tom Shepard started getting calls from cops they know. What did the detectives say? I had a conversation with one. It was sort of a heads up. He's know, hanging out with the wrong people. He's hanging out with the wrong people. He's doing some... He's in the wrong neighborhood. You guys need to tell your guy to tighten up. Why is he still in town? And so then we, I, I definitely talked to him. I don't know if you talked to him separately too, but I, I definitely talked to him after I'd learned that before the charge and, and sort of questioned like, what the hell are you doing? You're not, this is not what we discussed. We'll still get you a bus ticket. We'll get you out of town. Where do you need a ride? We'll take you wherever you need to go. No, 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 don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. That was the, that was the response. In another one of Turner's videos, he brags about the Decker charges. I'm a star on Finish Street. Caught a charge with the police. It was all over TV. Everybody say no me. Facing life so I can't sleep. Did a bid and sell eight. Our patient just had to wait. I'm has bought this my break. Has bought me. Around 4:30 a.m. on July 16th, 2014, gunfire erupted in Norfolk. For two years, he was in jail accused of killing off-duty Norfolk officer Victor Decker. But when defense lawyers proved snitches were lying, prosecutors said they didn't have enough evidence to take Kareem Turner to trial. But now investigator Mike Mather reports that Turner is back in jail and charged with yet another murder. Turner had been out of jail for four months. Now 35-year-old Duong Glover was lying dead on the street. Glover was walking to his car after a house party when three men tried to rob him. Turner was part of the trio, along with his cousin Roy Turner and a man named Joshua Wood. Wood walked up to Glover and put a gun to his side. Glover tried to run away. A witness said all three robbers opened fire. Turner denied pulling the trigger. He said Glover was a friend of his but he was arrested along with the other two. A Norfolk officer on the gang squad said Turner was a member of a gang affiliated with the Bloods. In jail, he said, Turner had contacted a high-ranking member of the gang. Mohammed knew both Turner and Glover. The victim was very, very close to me, very close as a brother close. He was so close that 
I traveled to New Jersey and eulogized him um, after uh, he was killed here on Jason Street in Norfolk. When Dewan first got out of the military, he came to one of the neighborhoods uh, over by Booker T and opened up a clothing store, 908s. 908 was the area code from where he was from in New Jersey. And so being in that area, we became acquainted and then we became friends and we became brothers. He was always supporting my every endeavor and push in the public for justice. Uh, he was very supportive and helpful uh, with my campaign and run for mayor uh, that concluded in May of 2014. And it devastated me and broke my heart that two months later, he laid dead, having been shot in every part of his body except the soles of his feet and one of his arms. It was devastating. And two days later, when it was said that Kareem Hansen Turner had committed it, I felt betrayed, I felt hurt, but I felt that Dewan was gone and there's now a new victim, or another victimization, I should say, that has taken place. And I still, to this day, with all of the love that I have for Dewan Glover, I see Kareem Hansen Turner as a victim. Turner's trial was held in June of 2016. It had plenty of theater. Turner's mother and a cousin were arrested for using Facebook to threaten witnesses. At least one witness said she'd been offered a bribe. Turner wound up with a 42-year sentence. The other two men got life. Police said they found 40 cartridge casings at the scene. They came from more than one handgun. Glover had been shot so many times, the coroner couldn't count them all. What hurt the most and caused me the most discomfort was putting in all that work, agonizing over it while it's pending, getting the result that you want, and then a few months later, turning on the news and seeing, you know, he's charged with a crime and it becoming very, very clear, a very serious crime, he's charged with murder again, and it becoming very clear that this one, he very much did. That was the part that I think bothered me the most. I still get pissed off. No, it makes, that. I'm crying. I have to cry every time I think about it. Harvey Bryant, the prosecutor who worked the case before Colin Stolle, he says the snitches bear some of the blame. How did you feel when, I mean, four months after Turner is released mm -hmm. because the charges are dropped? Mm -hmm. And we hear about him being arrested again mm -hmm. for a totally shot unrelated somebody. murder. Yeah. 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 How did, how, what were your thoughts going through your head at that time? Well, the, the thoughts going through the, my head were that um, Colin had done the right thing. It's not something he could have helped. Uh, once he knew he wasn't going forward with the case, you have to go ahead and tell the judge uh, and get that over with. But the person or persons who changed their stories uh, caused another person to get killed. I mean, you know, 
These are violent people. Nobody's ever said Turner and Perry are, are nice guys uh, or nonviolent guys. To them, no lives matter. It's not black lives, white lives, blue lives. People like that, no lives matter. And that's why they're dangerous and scary, and we do everything we can to keep them off the street as long as we can. But sometimes it doesn't work out like that. You know, it's interesting hearing you say that because I know Jennifer and, and Emily Munn, both who we've talked to, that what they've said to us is basically, and they said it on the record in this room, um, is that, you know, they've had a lot of clients. They both have had a lot of clients. But these guys, it just it, it struck them from, from as they went and, and looked at the case that these two just didn't do it. And in Emily's case, you know, her client got back out on the street and then later killed somebody and is now in prison for... I think basically the rest of his life, but it's still, I think kind of haunts her. Cause she says, this didn't happen. Like this, this one did not happen. I just curious to see if you have any kind of a response to that. Just to repeat what uh, Commonwealth attorney Colin Stolle said at the time, we had the right people. We just don't have the evidence now. Turner asked Shepard and Munn to defend him again. They said no. There was not a very difficult discussion between the two of us about that either. There is no chance that we were getting involved in it. There, it would have been impossible. It's still, as I sit here two years later, it's still impossible for me to separate out my own personal crushing disappointment that we couldn't keep. I feel badly about it. I feel like we... Well, it just validates what everyone thought, you know, that, that they got the right guys and it... it the, the subsequent act validates that it, it's like confirmation bias, you know? They, it confirms in their mind, it doesn't change the evidence against him with respect to, to Decker's death at all, but it just confirms what they all suspected all along. For me, it was more than just confirming that he's a bad person. It was that I, f I feel like we watch this person give away his second chance. Just want to look at him and say, why? Why would you why would you mess this up? Why would you let that why would you let the street call you? Dennis Stevens, the criminologist you've heard from before, has counseled a lot of inmates on their way out of jail. And I always had the same speech that I gave these um, people entering the world. And it sounded something like, well, I know, you, I know you're pissed off and angry, and you should be, because some of you shouldn't be here, as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, I'm not the, the judge. But I want you to continue to be angry, because that's exactly what the man wants you to do, because we want you to come back. We are the largest business in the United States, Department of Corrections, $68 billion dollars. Go commit the crimes and come back so we can get you here. Or you can be sensible and say, okay, <laughs> I need to keep a low profile. We are a wonderful country, and yet once the criminal justice system gets a hold of you, it's over. Was there a period of time, Tom or Emily, too, when this case shook your faith in the law? You know, I've, I, I had one of the reasons I went and started doing defense work is I had reservations about the process on the other side. 
So it certainly didn't help. And had he had that blown up in our face and he he'd been convicted, I, I never would have that never would have sat well with me ever. I never would have let that go. That would have bothered me to the end of my days. So it, it certainly did. I, I would say some of that stuff's already there. You, you do that. You, you do this long enough. You see things that cause you to question your faith in the system all the time. Uh, this is probably the most extreme example of that. In the end, the right thing happened. It's again, it's disappointing to hear that the Commonwealth Attorney thinks that they still have the right guys. So in that way, I would say to me it, that causes me to question the system. Shepard and Munn took a photo with Turner at a party after his release. It ended up on the door of a prosecutor in the Commonwealth's attorney's office, right next to a photo of Dawn crying at her husband's funeral. And that... Can I, can I curse here? Yeah. That fucking pissed me off in a way that I have not been mad at another attorney in and my entire it was, life. It was in such poor taste that other prosecutors in their office came and told us that they felt badly for us, that this was so disrespectful and so making fun of something that wasn't funny. It's they, been two years. They should have been embarrassed about how that case went down. They, sh- they should I'm have, they should be, off. they should be ashamed that people aren't serving time for killing this really nice guy with a really nice family. And so for other prosecutors to come to us and kind of tattle saying, you know, the supervisor has this picture of you guys on the door. It's awful. It's not funny. This is a Virginia Beach prosecutor. Yes. We tried to talk to Raymond Perry and Kareem Turner. We weren't successful. Perry will stay in prison, basically for the rest of his life. Jennifer Stanton, his attorney in the Decker case, has been featured in our earlier episodes, but she says she didn't feel comfortable advising Perry to talk to us. She doesn't see how it would do him any good. With the Decker charges only dropped, prosecutors could decide to go after him again, and the death penalty. As for Turner, we wrote letters to him in jail, explaining what we were trying to do. I checked my mailbox at work over and over, hoping for an answer. Nothing. We got a hold of Turner's current attorney, who told us his client is appealing his conviction for the murder of Dewan Glover. He said he'd talk to Turner himself, see if he'd be willing to speak with us about the Decker case. There's only been silence. Is it enough for Dawn that both Turner and Perry are locked up, even if it is for other crimes? Her husband's murder is seven years old, but older cases than that get solved sometimes. People come forward with new information, or someone whose conscience has been eating at them makes a confession. There's a lot of theories out there. Maybe getting them out there will help shake something loose. I've been told I should be, I should accept that, that at least they're behind bars. That's not an acceptable answer to me. Coming up on The Shot, you know, at 100 yards, a firecracker in your parking lot would be three times as loud as that gunshot. It would have sounded like somebody hitting a piece of plywood with a hammer at a distance. Maybe 20 years ago or 30 years ago, uh, an officer could actually moonlight as a really crooked dude involved with some really bad, bad stuff. But in this day and age, it would be next to impossible. Yeah, I have no evidence to back this up, but I have covered probably a half dozen bona fide hits in my career, both at the pilot and at Channel 3. Legitimate hits, and I think this was one of them. 
Thanks for listening. And if you like this podcast, do us a favor and go on iTunes and give us a good review. Five-star reviews will help more listeners find us. The Shot was produced by Randy Greenwell and edited by Bill Henry with special help from Josh Davidsberg. Music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. WTKR contributed TV news clips. Will Halp is our digital graphics editor. For graphics, photos, and more, go to pilotonline.com slash the shot. Sources for this podcast include documents and other materials found in court records or obtained by the pilot from credible sources who wish to remain anonymous.